Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Samuel chapter 1, beginning at the first verse. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites and stayed in Ziklag for two days. On the third day, a man arrived from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and with dust on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground to pay him honour. Where have you come from? David asked him. He answered, I have escaped from the Israelite camp. What happened? David asked. Tell me. He said, the men fled from the battle. Many of them fell and died. And Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. Then David said to the young man who brought him the report, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, the young man said, and there was Saul leaning on his spear with the chariots and riders almost upon him. When he turned round and saw me, he called out to me and I said, What can I do? He asked me, Who are you? An Amalekite, I answered. Then he said to me, Stand over me and kill me. I am in the throes of death, but I'm still alive. So I stood over him and killed him, because I knew that after he had fallen, he could not survive. And I took the crown that was on his head and the band on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and for the army of the Lord and the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who brought him the report, Where are you from? I am the son of an alien, an Amalekite, he answered. David asked him, Why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of his men and said, Go, strike him down. So he struck him down and he died. For David had said to him, Your blood be on your own head. Your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan and ordered that the men of Judah be taught this lament of the bow. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines be glad, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you neither dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back, the sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan, in life they were loved and gracious, and in death they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles, they were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, Weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. How the mighty have fallen in battle. Jonathan lies slain on your heights. I grieve for you, Jonathan, my brother. You were very dear to me. Your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of women. How the mighty have fallen. The weapons of war have perished.
Emma, thank you very much for reading for us. Do keep your Bibles open at 2 Samuel chapter 1. If you just close it, it's on page 304 in the Pew Bibles. And you might also find it helpful to have to hand the handout, which I hope you received on the way in. It's on this cream sheet like this. It'll give you a rough guide of where we're going over the next few moments. Let me uh, pray as we look at God's word together. Father, we thank you very much that your son now sits on the throne of this world. And we thank you that one day he will return and we will see his kingdom for what it now is, but what it will be fully consummated then. And I pray tonight that you would help us to understand, to rejoice in the great news that Jesus is the king. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Steffi mentioned in the prayers tonight, I'm sure you're aware of the terrible events taking place in the country of Syria over the last few years. Hundreds of thousands of people have been killed in the war and violence. Many millions have been displaced from their homes and now face a very uncertain future. And the whole time, the the local leaders in Syria seem either unwilling or unable to find a way to peace. But not just the local leaders, the global leaders watching on, for whatever reason, whatever their motives, whatever their input and powers are, the the global leaders also have not been able to find a way to so influence things that peace comes to a broken country. And as more people die, and as we watch on, it, it makes you want to scream as we see the inability of human leaders to bring about peace and security, to to fix a broken country. Closer to home in this country, perhaps less extreme, but a a new politician comes along making great promises about reform to healthcare or the economy or social justice. And as they make these promises, we want to believe them. We, We long to be led well. And yet so often, again and again, as politicians come and go, they make promises and then they break promises. And so time and again, we are confronted with the reality of the inability of human leaders to deliver on the things we really need in this broken world. And of course, we aren't the first people to come face to face with the limitations of human leaders to bring us what we need in this broken world. Tonight, as Ben says, we start a new series in 2 Samuel, and if your Bibles are open, straight away, verse 1 sets the scene for us. After the death of Saul. Those five words take us face to face to a nation with shattered dreams. It's a thousand years B.C., Israel had asked for a king so that they could be like the other nations. You also had a king. You can read about it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Saul was chosen. And from a worldly point of view, he was an ideal choice. He was a big man, a mighty man, just the kind of king you'd want to lead you into battle against your enemies. Hopes were high. And yet he ended up being a terrible failure. He failed to defeat Israel's enemies, the the Amalekites. He disobeyed God, and so God turned away from him. All that is explained in uh, 1 Samuel, uh, particularly um, chapter 28 there in the handout. You can see the references. 
And the failure of Saul reaches its terrible climax in the battle with the Philistines right at the end of 1 Samuel. A terrible moment. Israel is defeated and Saul, her first king, is killed. And with him, all her hopes and dreams of a peaceful and secure life. It's a dark time in Israel's history as her leader fails. And the failure of Saul is the failure we see again and again with human leaders who are unable to bring about the peace and security we need in this broken world. Offering so much and yet unable to do what we need. But at the same time, look at how verse 1 continues. After the death of Saul, David returned from defeating the Amalekites. You might remember from our series in 1 Samuel that took place two years ago here at Fullwood that um, in 1 Samuel, David has already been anointed by God as the next king after King Saul. He's already lined up, king-elect. But unlike Saul, David is described as a man after God's own heart. That's uh, 1 Samuel 13. And straight away, there's a ray of hope because David does something Saul was never able to do in defeating the Amalekites. And the rest of 2 Samuel is going to track the rise and reign of this second king, King David. And we cannot help but compare and contrast the failure of King Saul, a a king that the people wanted to be like the other nations, with the rise and reign of King David, a man after God's own heart. And 2 Samuel is going to show us what it looks like and feels like to live under the reign of King David, a man after God's own heart. And it's wonderful compared to the disaster of King Saul. But we must understand when we read 2 Samuel that the reign of David is just a model, just a picture of a far greater king. For his Descendant is the Lord Jesus who comes to the throne to rule over the nations in an even more glorious way than King David was ever able to do. As Ben mentioned at the beginning of our meeting in Mark's gospel, Jesus himself begins his public ministry with with the words he mentions, the time has come, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. To our modern ears, so used to hearing about the failure of human governments and kings and leaders, it is hard to sell the idea that the arrival of a new king and a new kingdom is actually going to be any better than the previous attempts. And so this talk of a king and God's kingdom, well, it it sounds good, but but often we, we fail to be as excited by it as we should because we think, will this new kingdom really be any better than the rest? Is it really good news? And so to Samuel, as we start to see what life is like under King David, is going to be a model, an insight into what life is like under the true king, King Jesus. And the purpose of to Samuel is to make us truly, eternally convinced that living under King Jesus in his kingdom is the best news in the world. For King Jesus is like no other king in this world. So let's dive in. David is not king yet, 
But what happens in chapter one of 2 Samuel is a preview of what life will be like when he becomes king, life in his kingdom. And so uh, you'll see on the handout straight away uh, the righteous judgment of the coming king. Saul has been fighting the Philistines up north. It's around 80 miles uh, uh, north of where David is in Ziklag. And uh, David's been busy fighting his own battle with the Amalekites while Saul's been up north fighting the Philistines. And David comes back to home, but he has no idea what's happened up north. And you, you can imagine for those two days, he's desperate to hear news of what's happened to Israel and King Saul. And then on the third day, there stumbles into camp a, a dusty and disheveled man with news from up north. Verse four, he said, the men fled from battle, many of them fell and died, and Saul and his son Jonathan are dead. David presses the man for more details. Verse five, how can you be sure Saul is dead? And the Amalekite basically responds, verse 10, I know Saul is dead because I killed him. And I have his crown here to show you uh, proof that he has fallen. Now we just need to press the pause button for a moment here. Why had this Amalekite just run the equivalent of three London marathons from the north in two days to bring David the news of Saul's death? That's where the wider context of 1 and 2 Samuel really helps us understand the story here. It was widely known that Saul and David had been, well, not exactly the best of friends in 1 Samuel. In fact, on numerous occasions, Saul had tried to kill David. David had been on the run for many years. It was also known that David was king-elect. He would be king after Saul. And with this background information, it's not hard to see why the Amalekite legs it down to David. The person who breaks the news to David that his enemy and um, rival to the throne, if you like, is now dead. Well, that man's going to be richly rewarded, you would think. Uh, there is another clue that uh, this is what the Amalekite was thinking. His story sounds very convincing. There are some details that are accurate, but in the end, his story is one big fat lie. We know from 1 Samuel 31 how Saul actually died. He was overtaken by archers, not chariots. And Saul died by his own hand. He fell on his own sword, not at the hand of an Amalekite. You can imagine what happened. The, the Philistines, were told, didn't search the bodies until the next day after the battle. And you can imagine the Amalekite sneaking through the battlefield under the cover of darkness that night searching for loot, a belt buckle, a sword, whatever he could find. And then in the dark, he strikes gold, quite literally, as he stumbles across the body of the dead king Saul, still wearing his crown. And in the darkness, you can imagine a plan starting to form in this Amalekite's mind, for he has, at the moment, some gold in the form of a crown, but the potential for lots more gold awaits him down south in Ziklag. If he can leg it down a ziklag and tell David that Saul is dead, then the, the gold of the crown will become much more gold. You can imagine him thinking about promotions and a, a retirement and an easy life if he can just get there first. 
And from a worldly perspective, this Amalekite makes the right call. The triple marathon and double time, the the lie, it's all worth it if you can get the greater prize of the reward from David. But this Amalekite has made a terrible miscalculation because David is not like other kings. He is a man after God's own heart. And so verse 11, instead of singing for joy, David sobs with grief. We'll be thinking much more about why this grief is so significant in just a moment. But look at how David continues. See verse 14. David asked him, why were you not afraid to lift your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? And then David has the Amalekite killed because, verse 16, your, your own mouth testified against you when you said, I killed the Lord's anointed. Any normal king, any king like the other nations have, would have welcomed and thanked the Amalekite. But David is no normal king. And all through the dark days of 1 Samuel, as Saul had chased David. David refused to lift his hand against Saul because as long as there was breath in Saul's body, he was still God's anointed king, the king God had put on the throne of Israel. And even though David had at times the chance to kill Saul, he would not, he dare not, for his loyalty to the Lord meant he was loyal to the Lord's anointed, Saul. David was a man after God's own heart, even in this most crucial of issues. And so even though it is shocking, David's judgment against the Amalekite is a righteous judgment for the Amalekite killed the Lord's anointed. Well, what does this mean for us tonight? We live 3,000 years after this event in history. Well, certainly it means that in God's kingdom, sin is always short-sighted just as the Amalekites attempted to gain profit through deceit and lies, just as that backfired, so all such attempts to gain progress in this world will backfire in God's kingdom. I don't know, think of uh, the person who crashes into our car. It's their fault, but um, they, they change the story and claim it wasn't their fault because they don't want to pay for the cost of the repairs. In the short term, the lie is beneficial because it makes them pay less money. But in the long term, as we see King David or the king-elect acting as king in this scene, judging the Amalekites, we see that even if sin in the short term looks profitable, in the long run it's always short-sighted. And how much more so when we remember that King David is just a picture of the true king who will come, the Lord Jesus Christ. And when he comes, every lie, every shortcut will receive its righteous judgment. The events taking place in Syria, all the claims and counterclaims being made by all sides, both within Syria and globally, someone somewhere has to be lying. And almost certainly for political gain. And it makes you want to scream, because we don't know exactly who or when or how, 
but what comfort it is to the people of Syria and to those watching on to know that one day there will be a king who will step in and he will judge rightly all the deceit ever made for human gain. But perhaps the main point for us tonight is that we are seeing how very dangerous it is to play loose and fast with God's anointed. This Amalekite was happy to set himself up as the one who killed God's anointed for the sake of short-term gain. And throughout history, many other people have done the same thing. In Psalm 2, we read about the nations who plot and conspire against the Lord's anointed king, thinking that somehow such rebellion will lead to freedom. But in Psalm 2, we realize that such rebellion is very short-sighted for the king will come and squash all rebellion. And so today, as people mock and jeer God's anointed king, King Jesus, sidelining him, belittling him, thinking they can finish him off by ignoring him, this is a very short-sighted thing to do, as the Amalekite found out. And David's righteous judgment shows us what will happen to anyone who persists in mocking the Lord's anointed king. The righteous judgment of the coming king. That's the first thing we learn about life in God's kingdom. Uh, Next, the righteous sorrow of the coming king. Look at verse 11. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan and the army of the Lord and all the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. This sorrow was not scripted. It was not some reaction for the sake of the cameras to put on some spin story about David's compassion. It was raw. It was instinctive, immediate, This is how David really felt about the news from up north. And David's sorrow is extraordinary. Remember, Saul had tried to kill him a number of times. Saul was the man who stood between David and the throne. And yet, verses 11 and 12 show us an instinctive, heartfelt reaction of genuine grief. And then what follows in the lament from verse 17 onwards if you like, captures David's settled, long-term reflections on the whole event. And it's a same mood. It's lament. He grieves over Saul and Jonathan and Israel. Verse 19. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Verse 24. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Verse 25. How the mighty have fallen in battle. There's so much that David could have said about Saul in his lament. Uh, He could have mentioned uh, Saul's wickedness, his lack of respect for God's word, uh, the way that he tried to kill David again and again, um, his utter failure as a king. He, He could have said lots but he says nothing negative about Saul at all in the lament. Instead, he focuses on the very best that was in Saul's life, on the good that has been lost in death. 
And at one level, this is a wonderful window into David's heart. There is real empathy, real compassion, even for his enemy Saul. And it is a good thing to be led by a king who grieves like this. Think of Jesus heading to Jerusalem, a city full of enemies, a city that would put him to death. And yet even as he approaches the city, we're told that he weeps over the city because he knows that their rebellion against him will lead to their destruction. And so here is a king who comes weeping over the fate of his enemies. And it's a wonderful window into the heart of the true king. In the face of death, he sees how terrible it is, how much death takes away, how the mighty have fallen, how much good is lost. The righteous sorrow of the coming king. But there is another dimension to David's righteous sorrow. We've touched on it already. But remember Saul and Jonathan, the heir to the throne, were the two men who stood in between David and the throne. But far from rejoicing in their death, David weeps. And this shows us that David, the king-elect, the coming king, for him there are more important things in life than power and position. Oh, he knew that one day he would become king. God had promised it to him. But he didn't want the throne this way through the untimely death of God's anointed. And so we are seeing here another dimension of David's righteous sorrow that marks him out from so many other leaders in this world. I think of our country after um, a general election when one prime minister has lost the election and a new prime minister comes into office. Um, I can't think of any occasion in the past when the new prime minister has, um, before they've done anything, they announce a season of public mourning for the prime minister who lost. I, I can't remember a prime minister standing up just on their first day with a genuine tear in their eyes saying, I'm so sorry that the other one lost. That's just not how human leaders work. Because so often for human leaders, the most urgent pressing thing is position and power. But not this king-elect, King David. Think of the fallout after Brexit as various politicians jockeyed for power and position. (laughs) Without naming names, there appeared to be plenty of backstabbing and U-turns and passing of the blame because human leaders are so often happy to grasp at power and position, but not King David's. His grief over the death of of God's anointed far outweighed any personal gain that might come his way. And notice also in verse 18, this lament is to be taught to all the people of Judah because David wants them to grieve as he grieves. He wants them to feel rightly about the death of the Lord's anointed. It is a tragedy that has happened. And as we see David, the coming king, and his priorities, we cannot help but look forward to Jesus, who did not come into this world grasping for power or position, but who instead humbly submitted himself to his father's will and timing. And this is such good news because it means the king who sits on the throne of God's kingdom is not a grasping king out for personal glory and power. 
don't get me wrong, King Jesus does have all glory and power, but he has not grasped for it. He has been given it by his heavenly Father. The righteous sorrow of the coming king. Finally, very briefly, the right response to the coming king. And here we look at the final few verses of David's lament. And the lament doesn't quite finish how we expect it to finish. We would expect it to finish at the end of verse 24, as David sums up what's happened to Saul. But he then adds a little appendix to the lament, which just focuses on Jonathan. So verses 25 to 27 are just about Jonathan, not Saul. And this ending is crucial for us because in this final section of the lament, David mourns Jonathan, his brother, who is so very dear to David. Verse 26, your love for me was wonderful, more wonderful than that of woman. Jonathan's love and loyalty for David is the right response to the coming king. There's no um, hint here in verse 26 that uh, David is talking about a, a sexual love between David and Jonathan. That's completely not the dynamic at work here. But rather, it is between uh, someone, Jonathan, who looks at David and sees in David a man after God's own heart, a man worth following, a man worth loving, a man worth committing his all to, serving with complete loyalty. And Jonathan's loyalty to David is deeper than any other relationship in this world, including marriage for Jonathan. And here we see the right response to the coming king as Jonathan models to the people and us how we should respond to the coming king. I wonder if this is our view of King Jesus, the one who has come, we often talk about people, um, sorry, often hear people talking about um, why being a Christian is such good news. And as they describe why it's such good news, they might say things like, it's wonderful to be a Christian because now I, I'm part of a, a church family. I have a community that supports me. Or it's wonderful being a Christian because I know that my sins are forgiven or that my future is secure or that one day I'll be in a world that's beyond pain and suffering. All wonderful, all true, but how often do we hear people saying the best thing about being a Christian is being able to know and love King Jesus? The great prize of the kingdom of God is the king himself. Well, let me put it another way. When Jesus returns and the world is put right, when the kingdom of God is consummated in all its fullness, what are we hoping the world will be like on that day? Do you ever daydream about the new creation? I hope you do. Do you ever imagine how better it will be than this current world? But what do you, what do you daydream about? Maybe a, a healthy body where there's no more aches and pains. Maybe it's seeing loved ones again. More time with friends. Or, or just less hassle, less struggle getting out of bed in the morning. Less hassle and work as we toil in a fallen world, whatever it is, nothing wrong with those things. In fact, some of them are held up to us as massive reasons to long for the kingdom of God to come. But if we can imagine an eternity in the future 
in a world put right that does not include at the center King Jesus. And we can still imagine ourselves being happy. Then can I say we've missed the whole point of the Bible? For the great prize of the kingdom of God is the king himself. And our great longings as his people should be to love and know him, for he is worthy of that kind of relationship from us. And here in chapter one of 2 Samuel, we see something of the beauty of the coming king. Just a glimpse. We'll see much more through 2 Samuel. Please keep coming through this series. But may our hearts be moved and warmed to love the true king. For he is like no other king in this world, judging justly, weeping over death, not grasping for power, but trusting his father. He is the best of kings, the kind of king who is worthy of all our affection and love. And so may we be like Jonathan, who loves the coming king with all our hearts because we know that the coming of his kingdom really is the best news in the world. Let me pray. Father, we confess tonight that often we do struggle to really believe that the kingdom of God is good news. We can't see it. We can't touch it. We can't go to a place in this world where it is visible. And so we thank you for 2 Samuel showing us what the kingdom of God is like. And I do pray tonight that you help us to love and worship and long for the coming king. In Jesus' name, amen.